0: I woke up at 2 a.m. last night drenched in sweat, throwing bedding off of me. Every pet was also on top of me, which probably didn't help. Many nights, I have the opposite problem, where I'm hunting in the hall closet for extra blankets in the wee hours because I'm freezing. In part, this is because my husband and I have wildly different sleep temperature preferences, and I'm cold because he's left all the sliding doors in our house wide open. But there's actually a solution I've come to learn. And I'm all about a sleep solution because we know how important good uninterrupted sleep is for every facet of health. Have you heard about ChiliPad by SleepMe? It's a bed cooling system designed to revolutionize the way you sleep naturally. The ChiliPad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. ChiliPad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees. You can also choose a different setting than your partner, so you each get what you need. What I want? A cool mattress with piles of blankets on top. ChiliPad believes sleeping at the optimal temperature helps people naturally reach their highest potential physically and mentally, Visit www.sleep.me slash thread to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code THREAD. This offer is available exclusively for Pulling the Thread listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep. SLEEP.me slash thread because you're not just investing in better sleep, you're creating a better life. Hi, it's Elise Lunan, host of Pulling the Thread. I'm an author, podcast host, and parent who built a long career in media. I grew up in a state of perpetual curiosity investigating the world and asking a lot of questions. In this show, I chat with culture-defining leaders, thinkers, and experts about this rare moment that we find ourselves in, and how to think about our own lives and experiences within a larger social and spiritual construct.
1: I think it's very important to mention also, Elise, that even if a woman feels permission to be angry, that It is, anger is such a tricky, mischievous emotion that it's so difficult to know what our anger means or what to do with it. So we may know that we're angry and anger activates us to to act, you know, to take a position to do something. But our anger does not tell us what the real issue is, who's responsible for what, what is the best way to proceed with our anger.
0: So says psychotherapist Dr. Harriet Lerner. Lerner is known and beloved for her many best-selling books about women, family systems, and relationships, including the classic Dance of Anger, A Woman's Guide to Changing the Patterns of Intimate Relationships, which we explore in today's episode. This book, it's foundational and something that many of the women I adore and love cite as a book that turned on the lights for their own excavation of their insides. Lerner believes that anger is an essential but oftentimes misunderstood and mismanaged emotion. She set out to write Dance of Anger to tackle female anger specifically of which nothing had been written at the time. When women are discouraged from discussing their anger, she tells us, they lose a sense of self as the pain of our anger preserves our dignity. We discuss the stereotype of the unloving, unlovable and destructive angry woman and the ways in which female anger is only deemed acceptable when it is on behalf of others. Lerner leaves us with tips for beginning to not only diagnose but work through our anger productively, starting with moving toward assertive self-definition without asking for permission and ultimately becoming careful observers of our own role and the patterns that keep us stuck so that we may make positive, lasting change on our own behalf. It is such an honor to talk to you because as you know, you are several of the women in my life who have been most impactful in our personal mentors like Brene, Jennifer Rudolph Walsh, cite The Dance of Anger and your work as one of the most sort of door opening, I think, experiences of their life. Like they really felt themselves, they felt seen in your work. And so to actually speak to you is, I'm beaming. (laughs) Oh, well, I'm beaming too. I'm happy to be here
1: talking about one of my favorite subjects.
0: I love that it was so difficult to get it published too. It's such a classic that I think it's reassuring to everyone to know that sometimes things that seem obvious to the author don't always resonate with the barriers to getting the word spread. Exactly.
1: The Dance of Anger was rejected for five years and nobody wanted a book on women's anger. And I could wallpaper the largest room of my old Victorian house and those rejection slips. So I think that says something about people's attitude toward female anger that no one wanted the book.
0: Yep, definitely. I mean, it's even now, I feel like we struggle with there's so much discomfort. Many of us are, are still never trained for conflict or to have, you know, appropriate grown-up resolution. We don't really know how to diagnose our anger understand what it's about. So let's start there. Let's start at the basics. Why did this feel so important? And then, as we know from sort of the resistance to it, like, what does that, what does that speak to?
1: This subject was very important to me because when I began my career at the Menninger Clinic in the 70s, most of the women I saw in therapy, whatever symptoms and dysfunctional behaviors they brought into treatment, whether it was depression, low self-esteem, fatigue, addiction, their problems, it was clear to me, had something to do with the difficulty of identifying the true sources of their anger and being able to use their anger from a position of power and self-definition. so, And also, it's such an important topic. Anger is such an essential emotion. And when I began writing The Dance of Anger, there was literally nothing written on the subject of female anger. There were books about how women nurse their babies in the remote island of the South Pacific, but total silence on women's anger. And it it was so obviously a book that needed to be written and a subject that we needed to talk about because anger is such an essential and misunderstood emotion.
0: In your work, and you know, the book is fascinating and presents a lot of stories and anecdotes that I think people, I know it's a, it's a, it's old, but I still think it's really relevant. And do you think it's because we're so disconnected? We're so ashamed of our anger. We're so scared of our anger. We're so confused by our anger. We're told that we shouldn't be angry. Is that, is it just, is it severed in such a way that when we go to dig, we struggle to find the roots?
1: I think that, that anger is inherently a very tricky and difficult emotion. On the one hand, it's a really important emotion for two reasons. And one is that anger helps us to define the self. It helps us to define who we are, to say and to know, you know, this is who I am. This is what I think. This is what I feel. These are the things that I will and will not do. So in the same way that physical pain tells us to take our hand off the hot stove, the pain of our anger preserves the very dignity and integrity of the self. And another reason that anger is so important is anger is a powerful vehicle for change as witnessed by our many decades of feminism. And people may not like, quote, those angry women, but it's those angry women who have changed and challenged the lives of all of us. So it's a really important emotion. And back to your question, women have always been discouraged from expressions of healthy anger and protest. And instead, women are encouraged to cultivate guilt, like a little flower garden. So society encourages women to feel guilty and self-doubting. And the women that I was seeing in therapy, especially before feminism arrived in Topeka, Kansas, where I was, (laughs) in an institution that was the the land of patriarchy that women came into therapy asking the question what's wrong with me you know why am i not a better mother why am i not you know a better wife so if we remain guilty and self-doubting then we don't take action except against our own self So there's that element. And, you know, then there's the element that anger by its very nature can lead us to mismanage it. So there are characteristic ways that women mismanage anger, even if we feel permission to be angry.
0: Hmm. Which is like venting or turning it on ourselves, or lashing out, or how do you, or sublimating it and stuffing it down in our bodies? Like, what do you typically see?
1: Exactly, Elise. All of the above. (laughs) (laughs) There are two major categories in which women mismanage anger. And when I was writing the, The Dance of Anger over a period of many years during all these rejections... My working title was Nice Ladies and Bitches, A Woman's (laughs) Guide to Anger. And I like that title because it captures the two major categories that describe how we mismanage anger. So in the nice lady category, that is culturally prescribed, right? In this category are women who give in, go along, accommodate, don't rock the boat. We avoid anger and conflict at all costs. We hold relationships in place as if our life depended on it. So that's one category, right? And actually in this category, it's not just anger and conflict that we avoid. We avoid any clear statement of self. This is what I think. This is what I will and will not do. That we fear, often accurately, will disrupt the predictable security of a relationship and evoke anger and disapproval. So we don't define ourselves clearly. We don't hear the sound of our own voice in the relationship saying what we really think and believe and need. And that, again, you know, leads to depression and low self-worth and unhappiness.
0: Pulling the Thread is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes Max, my oldest, tells me he wants to go in the back of the house and talk. What he means by this is purely the verb. He doesn't want to have a conversation. He wants to talk, to vent and unload, to fill me with factoids. Mom, want to know 40 things about acid rain? But more often, to get things off his chest. It's fascinating to listen to him and what he perceives to be injustices, annoyances, and harms. I recognize that in those moments, he doesn't want advice or for me to higher mind him or for me to justify his own feelings to him, but simply to be a container for the one-sided stream, to just listen. I recognize what he's doing because I do it every week too, in therapy. I was thinking just the other week that it's rare to find someone who will just listen, maybe point out some patterns or hold me accountable when I say something wild. Wait, Elise, pause. Do you really feel that about yourself? Or why do you think you care about this so much? But aside from these moments of intervention when my therapist makes me reflect or feel, I'm doing the talking, and it helps me feel so much freer. Thank God for therapy. This is one of the reasons I'm very excited for therapeutic solutions like BetterHelp. They have licensed therapists who are available worldwide and specialize in depression, anxiety, sleep disturbances, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBTQA issues, grief, and self-esteem. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with the therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash PTT today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H E L P.com slash PTT. You talk about sort of, I mean, we can think about the different, many different spheres, right? Sears from cultural, to sort of that middle sphere of interpersonal relationships with people at work or friends, to the most intimate relationships in our lives where anger certainly foments. Do you find that the different types of anger are inherently different, or are they all coming from the same source? And that, for example, the anger that you might be expressing towards your partner is really about feeling you know, discarded, disregarded, or overlooked at work or feeling really frustrated by what's happening culturally and not having a a place to express that or even understanding what it is? Or, Or do you feel like there are different types of righteous indignation depending on the sphere that we're in?
1: I think the challenge of anger is very similar, whether we're in a workplace, whether it's mother and daughter, whether it's a romantic relationship or, or marriage or whatever, but how to manage and or what, but how to manage your anger wisely and well. Obviously, I'm going to manage my anger very differently with my husband Steve, who I've been married to for decades. Then I will, for example, at the workplace. So let me mention the, the one other category of mismanaging anger before we move on, because there the you know there's the nice lady, which is culturally prescribed, and then there's the quote bitch category, that's the nice ladies and bitches because many women like myself get angry with ease, but getting angry may be getting nowhere and even be making things worse. So for example, in this category are women who may engage in a lot of fighting and blaming, but it's not leading to any constructive resolution or to constructive problem solving. And although these two categories look as different as night and day, I mean, obviously the nice lady will look very different than the woman who gets the the label of strident or bitchy or difficult to work for. But actually these two categories, the nice lady and the quote bitchy woman they're actually two sides of the same coin because after, after all is said and done or not said and done, the outcome is the same. The real issues are not identified and addressed. The woman is left feeling helpless and powerless and nothing changes. So the bottom line is that, and this never changes you know, in all of recorded history, that ineffective fighting and complaining and blaming will actually pro- protect rather than protest the status quo. So women who fight ineffectively suffer as deeply as women who can't get angry at all. And there Amen. are many great examples of how even when we have permission to get angry, we we muck it up. It doesn't it. It doesn't lead to productive change.
0: Yeah. I want to work through with you sort of like how we start to sort of in our our interpersonal lives, work through our anger. But do you mind if I read you a paragraph from your book about the cultural construct? Because I think it's so clarifying. These things are so insidious, this programming that we've all imbibed around you know, the the bitches, right? So do you mind if I read your, because I think it's still, certainly still holds. And we see this in, in current day books about anger, whether it's Rebecca Traister or Sor- Soraya Chamali, like these are still the themes. So is it okay if I read to you? I would love you to read from my book. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so you write, Women who openly express anger at men are especially suspect. Even when society is sympathetic to our goals of equality, we all know that, quote-unquote, those angry women turn everybody off. Unlike our male heroes who fight and even die for what they believe in, women may be condemned for waging a bloodless and human revolution for their own rights. The direct expression of anger, especially at men, makes us unladylike, unfeminine, unmaternal, sexually unattractive, or more recently, strident. Even our language condemns such women as shrews, witches, bitches, hags, nags, man-haters, and castrators. They are unloving and unlovable. They are devoid of femininity. Certainly, you do not wish to become one of them. It is an interesting sidelight that our language, created and codified by men, does not have one unflattering term To describe men who vent their anger at women, even such epithets as "bastard" and "son of a bitch" do not condemn the man but place the blame on a woman, his mother. So So true, true. still so true. And now we have shrill, right? We have shrill added to that list.
1: You know, it's so interesting, Elise, that we have these words like you know, castrating and ball breaking, and because they imply that female anger is all destructive. And that men are utterly vulnerable to this this powerful force. And it's so ironic. You know, we we don't have these words to describe men who vent their anger at women. And it's so ironic because men do not stay home at night because they're afraid that if they go out in the dark, that some woman in the throes of her premenstrual syndrome is going to attack them. It's women who stay home at night because we fear anger and aggression from men. And yet the language, you know, is so interesting because it Isn't just it? speaks to this irrational dread of women's anger. And it's so alive and well today, you know, really educated college women say things like, today, Like, you know, I believe in equality, but I'm not a feminist. Well, why aren't you? How come you don't like that word, feminist, feminism? Because I'm not one of those angry women. I'm not one of those. You know, so it's a great prohibition because no one wants to be seen, you know, as whatever the stereotype is of the angry woman.
0: Crazy. It's so it's so inhibiting and it's so interesting when you were saying that about castrators and ball breakers because I don't remember where I was reading this, but the, et- the etymology too of testifying, testament, et cetera, is testicles. So we also imbue men. It was like this swearing on your balls, I guess. Like we imbue men with this ability to speak the truth from their, I don't know, from their source of life. In a way that's so gendered, actually. It's really it's pretty wild. Yes.
1: Language is so fascinating. Someone referred to the Dent of Anger as a truly seminal work. Yeah. And I didn't know what to I didn't know like how to <laughs> on the spot change, change that word to. I
0: don't know. I haven't. You have Ovarian? A, I I mean, Ovarian? I no, it <laughs> it's mean, it's a fallopian but, word.
1: <laughs> right. The language is very, very interesting.
0: It's fascinating. Mm-hmm. And we don't, you know, understandably, we we shortcut. We move so fast. And often we don't stop to think about what we're actually, the, un, the, the backstory of what we're trying to say. And, you know, it's funny just to bang on about the cultural part too is, you know, I've interviewed Mary Beard years ago and her work is really about how, not entirely, but how women have been silenced throughout literature. You know, you have Telemachus telling his mother, it's like the first recorded instance of a woman speaking in Western language and he's telling her to shut up and go away. And that women were really only ever allowed to speak if it was on behalf of other people. And that feels... To this day, like you are really only be allowed to be angry if it's not in your own interest, but in the interest of some other group. That is exactly true.
1: So that groups like uh, we can be we can absolutely be angry on behalf of others, for example, less powerful than ourselves, like children, like mothers against drunk driving or mothers who Are standing in anger for another group, but not if we take up our own cause. No, that stirs up much more anxiety. I think it's very important to mention also at least that even if a woman feels permission to be angry, that it is anger is such a tricky mischievous emotion that it's so difficult to know what our anger means or what to do with it so we may know that we're angry and anger activates us to to act you know to take a position to do something but our anger does not tell us what the real issue is Who's responsible for what? What is the best way to proceed with our anger? And it's just very, very easy to use our anger ineffectively, even if we know that we have a legitimate gripe. Maybe I should give you an example of that. Yeah, let's you know to make it to make it real. This is an example I put in the book and. I want you to bear with me and I want our listeners to bear with me because this example is going to seem very outdated, which it is, but it will illustrate exactly the way all of us get into trouble with anger and mismanage it. And the example that I give in the book is a woman named Barbara who called me the night before a workshop I was giving on It was called Talking Straight and Fighting Fair. I was doing it in the community with a colleague and she called me to cancel her workshop, my workshop, wait a second. She called me to cancel her part in the workshop. She didn't want to come. And she told me that her husband would not let her go. And that's why she was canceling. And I asked her, I was curious. I said, what was his objection? And she said, you. And I said, well, I was curious. I said, you know, (laughs) tell me more. And she said, my husband said that you are a radical women's liber, and that the workshop wasn't worth the money and that he could not support my going. And she said to me, and I fought with him. I argued with him. I told him that you were a reputable psychologist from an esteemed institution and that the workshop was worth the money. And I fought with him until I was blue in the face, but I couldn't change his mind. Oh, and then she added, but at least he admitted that I need some kind of help with my anger because I behave like such a bitch. So I hung up the phone (laughs) and I thought about that little conversation for a long time, because as I said, although we might not identify with Barbara, what she does is what all of us may do. So, for starters, and jump in anytime, if, because we're going to talk about the problems here, you know, the yeah. ineffective use of real, legitimate anger. First of all, she was fighting with her husband over a pseudo-issue. She was fighting over my qualifications, my credentials. That's not the real issue. So what do you think the real issue is in that relationship? I mean, do you want to venture? Lack of
0: autonomy, lack of self-agency, needing permission to... Do something that she wants to do?
1: Exactly. So the real issue relates to things like how is power and authority shared in that marriage? Who's in charge of making decisions about what the wife can and cannot do? How much flexibility does the relationship have to tolerate change? So she's fighting over a pseudo issue. Which we all do. It's very hard to know what it is that we're really angry about. And one complicating factor is that we're wired for fight flight. So it just takes a little bit of anxiety or stress from any source, and we can go into fight flight mode. And in fight mode, you know, people under stress will very quickly divide into opposing camps. We will get over-focused on what the other person is doing wrong and under-focused on our own creative options to move differently and de-intensify the situation. And Or we get into flight mode and we distance, we cut off, we stop speaking to that person or we stop speaking about things that matter. And you know, it can be very hard to know what the real issue is. So that's one problem. And going back to Barbara's fighting is that she's fighting over a pseudo issue. And next, she's using her anger energy to try to change her husband's mind. She not only wants to go to the workshop. She wants him to want her to go to the workshop.
0: Totally. And the
1: right. And the problem, you know, we all sort of have this. We not only want to take an assertive position, we want the other person to like it. So the problem with her using her anger energy to try to change his mind about me and the value of the workshop, well, there are two problems. One is that he has as much right to his opinion about the workshop as she does. We all have a right to everything we think and feel. And being in a relationship, whether it's a marriage or mother-daughter requires a profound respect for differences. So that's one issue. And the other problem with her trying to change her husband's mind is it's not possible. I have been in the business of change for, (laughs) I would say 50 years now, and I have never been able to change a person who doesn't wanna change. And as we focus our anger energy into our unsuccessful attempts to change another person, we lose the ability to change what we really can change. And that is to take a new and different action on our own behalf. That raises the question, and I'd be curious about your ideas, Elise.
0: Yeah, I mean, it resonates so deeply. Why do you think Barbara does
1: that? Why do you think she does that?
0: I mean, why would
1: she engage in ineffective fighting and blaming instead of going to her husband and saying, look, dear, I know you see it differently. I I also have a different opinion. The workshop is important to me, and I plan to go.
0: Fear of loss of relationship, Mm -hmm. wanting in some ways maybe to maintain a victim status, which maybe that's a weird response, but I think- it's easier to direct your blame and anger towards your partner sometimes than to actually engage with what it actually means, which sort of goes back to the beginning of our conversation. And then also porous boundaries. I think I I struggle with this where I just don't know where I end and the other person (laughs) (laughs) begins, like what's me and what's not.
1: Well, I, I agree with all of those. There is certainly a boundary problem in terms of her lack of clarity that she is in charge of ensuring the quality and direction of her own life. And certainly you mentioned the fear of loss. That's a very important one because if Barbara were to say to her husband, you know, this workshop is very important to me and I plan to go. What would his response be? I mean, would he say, "Wow, I'm so pleased. I'm so proud of you, Barbara, for this whole new level of assertiveness and and self-definition. You know, go, Barbara. Of course not. Change doesn't happen that way. And instead, what happens when we make a change and take in your position is we get a counter move, and the person will say, "You're wrong." You're being selfish. How can you do this? How can you say that? And in fact, we don't know how her husband would respond. Indeed, we don't know if there's some issue of violence in the marriage, if he would, you know, take physical action if she said, I'm going to the workshop. Or we don't know if he's the breadwinner, you know, the sole breadwinner, and if he would say, You know, well, in that case, you're not getting money to visit your mother ever again. And then Barbara would have to decide what is her next move? You know, would she shuffle back to the broom closet or would she say, you know, we need to talk about this because I don't want to be in a marriage where, you know, I can't say what I think and believe and make decisions on my own behalf. Would she be able to hang in? And it's very scary because it may be easy to make one change, but it's really hard to make only one. So if Barbara takes a new position on the workshop, surely there are a lot of other issues in the marriage that are there. And if she does take a position, she will be more likely to take others and she will be in the process of change and growth. And will he change along with her? Or you mentioned, you know, the fear of loss. Will she ultimately lose him? And I'm not saying all these things are conscious in Barbara's mind. And also, if you were implying, it's not, you know, that women love to be victims. I mean, that's a false belief. It may be be true that... She doesn't want to go to the workshop herself. She's scared to go to the workshop so that it can become an easy out to say to herself, my husband won't let me go. But the point of it, the point of it is it's, you know, even if you feel permission to fight, you know, a fog can descend upon your brain very easily. And we may not know what the real issue is. And how to take a strong position on our own behalf, and how to deal with the counter moves when the other person says, How can you do it? How can you say it? You'll kill your mother. You know, how do we stand firm with the position and be able to say, You know, this is what I believe, and this is what I need to do for myself. Without getting defensive, without getting attacking, you know, and to be able to hold firm to that boundary, to that position, yeah. it's very hard.
0: Wondering what to give your mom or wife or daughter or friend or godmother for Mother's Day? From someone who cares a lot about her bed and sleep, may I recommend something from Cozy Earth? In fact, Becoming a mom and suffering through its required sleep deprivation is where my obsession with sleep started, so it's one of those gifts that might really bring things full circle. After all, women in particular are really impacted by sleep deprivation, which has massive implications for our health. Between the hypervigilance of motherhood and the hot flashes of perimenopause and menopause, we get a raw sleep deal. So let me tell you about giving women you love their best night's sleep ever let me tell you about Cozy Earth. Their sheets are made from viscose from bamboo, and they are indescribably soft. So soft, like a bed hug, like no other. Now, I'm not the only mega Cozy Earth fan. Every single year since 2018, Cozy Earth products have been named as one of Oprah's favorite things. Oprah picked their best-selling bamboo sheet set because they're temperature-regulating and incredibly soft, and she picked their joggers and their socks and their pajamas. Meanwhile, Cozy Earth doesn't just make sheets, they also make pillows, blankets, and more. Cozy Earth makes their products by sourcing responsibly. They use the best suppliers with an eye toward quality, responsible production, cutting-edge technology, and premium materials. They're also incredibly durable. They get better with every wear, and they have an enhanced weave that is guaranteed not to pill even after washing and drying. All Cozy Earth products can be returned or exchanged within 100 days and include an additional 10-year warranty against defects. This Mother's Day, treat mom to the luxury she deserves with Cozy Earth bedding and sleepwear and prioritize her self-care and sleep health. She deserves it. Don't forget to use my promo code thread at checkout for 35% off at CozyEarth.com. After placing your order, select podcast in the survey and select my show in the drop down menu that follows. So they know that we sent you. You know, I'm thinking about my own relationship and, you know, historically, and I feel like I've outgrown this without really being conscious of it. But I, and I think it's probably my training, even to sort of liberal progressive parents, of wanting, wanting, Everyone to be on the same page, wanting permission, this relationship building that we're told is our sort of destiny as girls. That with my husband, I used to not ask for permission, but I was, I used to sort of be like, is it okay if I go on a hike on Saturday morning since we have two kids? It felt like the fair thing to do. I don't actually, I just stopped asking because I realized that my, expectation that he would be enthusiastic and bless all of my choices for things that I needed to do for myself. Like it wasn't helpful and that I just needed to do what I needed to do for myself without permission. So I just put it in our shared calendar and he can protest it if he wants. But I had to, I mean, it's such a, it's minor, but I did really have to consciously, it's like in that movie, The Breakup with Vince Vaughn and Jennifer Aniston when, (laughs) You, you brought this up, this line, but when they're sort of in the midst of their breakup and she's like, I want you to want to do the dishes. I don't know if people remember that movie right. or that I, scene, yeah. but it I was so amazing. <laughs> I, yeah. I want you to want to do the dishes. And he was like, "I." He, it just did not compute for him. But I think as women, we have a fantasy that our partner is going to be supportive and like you go you do your thing you be selfish that they're gonna push uh, they're gonna give us implicit permission to prioritize our own needs and I think part of the liberation comes from being like actually I don't need your permission to go work out I'm just gonna go work out
1: obviously it's a good thing to be able to consider other people so, for example, if you want to work out, and that is the very time that your husband has something very important scheduled, you might work out at another time. And yet, you know, your your move toward self-definition and not feeling like you needed permission for things is a very positive move. in In the process, it, it's really difficult for. For women. You know, what you're talking about is so important because it relates to the issue that women struggle with. What is my responsibility for other people? You know, what's my responsibility to care for other people, to care for other family members, to rescue other family members when they need it? And what is my responsibility? to ensure the quality and direction of my own life, you know, to protect my own life. And this is such an important um, issue for women, whether they're dealing with caring for an aging parent, where they feel like they are giving too much and doing too much and they're depleted and they're younger brother is doing nothing and you know how how are they to deal with this and it's important to say that it is a tremendously positive part of women's cultural legacy to care about relationships to tend to relationships the problem comes in when we don't protect ourselves you know when we're giving so much that or, or we're you know bailing someone out so much that it's very much at our own expense and of course that is going to breed anger or depression or fatigue and it's very easy to blame the person in need Rather than to figure out where we stand and what we can and cannot do. For example, I've worked with so many women in therapy who are so angry, for example, with an aging parent who they feel is so demanding and they are giving so much that the daughter, you know, my therapy patient is feeling depleted and, and exhausted. And it's much easier to be angry and blaming at their mother, than it is to calm down and do one's best thinking. So that the woman can clarify what she believes her responsibility to her mother is versus her responsibility to herself. And that she can go to her mother in a calm way that's not critical or blaming and be able to say to her mom, you know, I'm feeling so tired and so exhausted that I've been thinking about for myself getting clear about what I can do and and the things that are too much for me to do. Because if I keep doing all that I'm doing, I'm going to end up crawling and dead next to you. Because we need more people on board. And the mother, again, the mother's not going to say, oh, how great, you know, I'm so glad to hear that you're going to take better care of yourself. And you're thinking about doing less for me, because that's what you need to do for yourself. You know, the mother might say, for example, I don't know how you can be so selfish, because I don't want other people, quote, on the team. And as you know, my mother, your grandmother lived with us, and I did everything for her. And then, you know, if the daughter is clear and strong, without getting defensive, critical, or blaming or lecturing, without trying to change her mother, she might say, You know, mom, I know that. I know you did absolutely everything for your mom. And I'm, I'm different from you and I can't do all for you as you did for your own mother. And I'm wondering how disappointed are you in me that I'm not a person who can do everything that you did for your mom. And then there might be another conversation where the daughter, she's brave, might ask her mom, you know, what is it like for you? What was it like for you to be the caretaker for your mom? Like, what were the positive things about it? And what were the hard, difficult, negative things about it? Because everything is a mixed bag. And I would love to know more about that. But what's hard is to shift from blaming the other person to a sense of, well, to shift into self-focus. No change will occur with anger if we're not self-focused. By self-focused, I don't mean self-blaming. I mean that we can become good observers of our part in the pattern that's keeping us stuck in anger and that we stay focused on observing and changing our own part in that pattern, even if we believe our own part of the problem is 2%, that's what we can change. And if we don't get self-focused, nothing will change because we need to have a sense of responsibility And by responsibility, again, I don't mean, oh, I've caused it. I mean response-hyphen ability. Think of the word that way: response ability. That we can limber up our brain. And when something is not working, we can figure out how to do something differently on our own behalf rather than keep doing more of the same and I will say at least that women always ask me why do I have to change like why do I have to be the one to change and the answer is so simple and so difficult which is that if you're unhappy with the status quo and you do not make a change on your own behalf no one else is going to do it for you So no, you don't have to change, but that is the reality of the situation.
0: High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in the seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. you sort of sent this idea of underfunctioning and overfunctioning into the mainstream and i know that was in the context of like clean, being overly responsible for other people's emotions but it also plays into this culture of learned helplessness or this idea often for women like oh just because we can do something we should and so instead of just instead of seething with resentment about like why am i the only one who goes to the grocery store it's like finding the temerity in a way to be like I'm just gonna go to the grocery store half the time, and if you want something, then you'll need to go. I mean, that's a stupid example, but I no, feel it's like not,
1: it's not—it's not a yeah. stupid example at all, at Elise. It's a great example. It's like you know, making meals every night is leaving me tired and grumpy. So, you know, the best nights for me to make me, you know, meals is Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And I'd love you to make meals on the other nights, and if not, we could snack. See so what's in the refrigerator. You know, I can take care of, of my own dinner. It's actually a very good example. And you're also sort of leaning toward another point that sometimes, when we overdo things or overfunction, we're operating at the other person's expense. Yes. We uh, we're being too competent. We're taking over too quickly. We have the answers for the other person. We try to fix things for them. We give too much advice and too many little corrections rather than saying, you know, I don't know, you know, that sounds tough. And letting the other person learn by trial and error, you know, being there if they ask us for help. But over functioners really. Are very quick, especially if you're the older sister of a sister, a firstborn woman, very quick, <laughs> you know, to be the expert and have the answers, not only for oneself, but for everyone else. And it actually makes it more difficult for the other person to reach for their own competence and struggle and gain more competence. Yeah. Whether it's competence in putting a snowsuit on a flailing toddler or you know whatever it is.
0: Yeah. It's interesting I'm a, uh, very much an overfunctioner and so much of my self-esteem is staked on my competence and all of the things that I do and that's been some of the hardest and deepest work which I think, you know, I cover up with my busyness is those feelings. So this is a big can to open but it's you know my own my poorest boundaries and also this the performative way in which I I it's my biggest wound right I must perform in order to be loved I must do all of those things for my husband otherwise he won't love me it is it, it does come back to that loss of relationship and it's funny because when we've done therapy and that's come up you know his look as you can imagine is like what the fuck are you talking about <laughs> like but uh-huh. I, in my mind you know I'm so primed for this. Like, look at what all the things I do for you and not even in, out of resentment, but just out of fear, I think, of, oh, he'll decide I'm not. I have no utility and he will discard me, which is painful to look at, but not actually tethered to reality.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And it's courageous for you to look at it and to share that with your husband. And I hope also... That you really value uh, that competence because it's a fabulous gift when you use it, you know, you use it to, well, you use it in what feels like a balance for you. Yeah. So I guess I'm saying a little self because I underfunction, at least. I mean, I'm coming from a place where I can overfunction at work. And when it comes to relationships, I can feel like the expert that should tell everyone exactly what to do to have better relationships. <laughs> but I really underfunction in the practical world, you know, driving, you know, how money is managed, or, you know, how does this work and that work? And I give, I hand everything over to Steve, who's happy to do it. And I would love to have your confidence. <laughs> I'm trying to work on it. I'm a youngest child. I've always been a natural underfunctioner. I'd love for other people to take over and do the work. And my husband always has done cooking and cleaning because you know I I what do I know about those things? So, um, you know, all of these things we do to get comfortable when we're anxious or we fear loss. You know, we distance, we pursue, we overfunction. We underfunction, we triangle, meaning we gossip or none of these things are, are good or bad. It's all we all do, some of them. And it's a matter of balance. So, you know, when you were talking about your problem with competence, I confess I was feeling envious. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, that's funny. But it's true. Everyone has their things. And I think that so much – we think that our thing is everyone's thing. So, you know, I think in relationships, I've found whether it's with my husband or my parents or work, it's like we are just unconsciously hitting each other's sore spots because we can't necessarily relate. Like we just don't have the same things, if that makes sense. So I would love to be – I would love to dump – our financial management and cleaning and cooking on my husband. So we're going to have to talk about how I can have more under-functioning in those spheres.
1: (laughs) Oh, I would love to give you some of my under-functioning for your over-functioning. I'll
0: plan all of your vacations to a T. But yeah, it is, as you said, self-compassion. For me, a lot of the work I've been doing in the last year is just giving, sending compassion to that little girl and like the reassurance of you know, you, your presence is enough. Like you don't have to be doing all this doing, but it's really hard. It's, it's ancient. Yeah. yeah. And
1: everything is a mixed bag. I mean, the ability to do so much for a person that you live with. I mean, if you're overdoing, if you're over but you're not feeling resentful and depleted and tired, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean there are a lot of women who love to, you know, be the one who's like the competent one and the one who's caring for the emotional and the practical needs. There there's nothing wrong with it except when where you know we get signals that this is at the expense of the self or the other person
0: mm-hmm.
1: or the relationship. I think women are always are always hard on ourselves. So whatever, whatever we're doing, it's like it's not exactly the right thing. We should be doing something else.
0: Well, Harriet Lerner is a legend, and she has written so many books. But I I do always think it's worth remembering that it took her five years to get The Dance of Anger published, which is certainly. Old, but still relevant, and you can see through examples in the book how you can modernize them very easily and very quickly. And we talked a bit about underfunctioning and overfunctioning, and so essentially, just to give you a little bit more context, there, this is from her book. She writes, a form of de-selfing common to women is called underfunctioning. The underfunctioning overfunctioning pattern is a familiar one in couples. How does it work? Research in marital systems has demonstrated that when women and men pair up and stay paired up, they are usually at the same level of independence or emotional maturity. Like a seesaw, it is the underfunctioning of one individual that allows for the overfunctioning of the other. And so often, you know, historically, I think this is getting slightly better, but historically, a woman in a in a heteronormative relationship would do more of the emotional processing and functioning for her husband. That's a very common pattern, particularly back in the day. But you see this sort of the, the husband who pulls away, the woman who leans forward. It's just this desire, I think, in any relationship, in any superorganism to find balance. And we do that in strange ways. But as she says, like taking care of your own side of the street or acknowledging where you may be doing too much or too little and then not disengaging necessarily, but taking ownership for that without the other person's permission. You know, the producer Phil and I were chatting after Harriet dropped off and we were talking about how it's so very much like Byron Katie, which I'm sure many of you have heard of Byron and her work. But she gives this example, which lodges in my head around her children and their socks and how they would leave their socks all over the place, their laundry just discarded on the floor. And it was driving her absolutely mad. And then she had this revelation as part of the work where she was like, the person who's bothered by the socks is me. And therefore, I should just pick up the socks like my kids aren't bothered. So me trying to make them concerned about their socks is only adding to my own aggravation. That I think about all the time when I'm sort of irritated that the kitchen is messy. I'm the one who wants to clean. So if I want to clean, I want to clean. But there's obviously a fine line in any functioning relationship too, where you're not overdoing it if it's going to increase your resentment and frustration. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation. There's so much in the book. There's so much more. Harriet said she'd come back and we can get into it in even more depth. See you next week.